thank you so much for the introduction and thank you so much for inviting me and welcoming me among you. It is indeed like home. Uh, not only because I come from the other place, but also because I come to my place to a certain extent. Thank you so much for that. Um, I also come to my place when I'm talking about energy installations at sea. Uh, several years ago, more than I actually wish to remember, I completed my PhD thesis on pollution from offshore installations. And as life has it, um, you turn around toward neighborhoods and uh, old ideas keep haunting you. Uh, that's uh, a tip for your PhD studies. Uh, they would follow you throughout your life. So several decades later, I come back to that, not just to discuss a part of uh, the presence of energy installations at sea, pollution, as was the case at that point, but actually looking at the overall <coughs> at the overall presence of energy installations in the marine environment, not only in terms of the protection of the environment, but actually on the way these things are placed, are operated, and form part of this whole uh, milieu, of this whole universe out there. Now, um, in your minds, I presume, uh, and I hope that uh, I'm wrong, actually, um, I presume that when we're talking about energy installations, you immediately uh, bring into your mind uh, offshore platforms, oil and gas kind of uh, platforms, things like that. Uh, you're right, to a certain extent, these are the traditional energy installations at sea, and these are uh, the subject matter of several um, uh, provisions that are to be found both in the uh, 1958 conventions but also in the <coughs> law of the sea. But when we're talking about energy installations, we're not just talking about offshore oil and gas platforms. We're also talking increasingly uh, about other things as well that create their own problems and, and present their own challenges. More and more these days, we're talking about offshore wind generation generators. Um, it's a kind of platform, you would actually tell me, quite right, but it's not the same platform um, as an oil and gas platform, which is a massive kind of installation, extremely difficult to build and extremely difficult to remove, uh, whereas if you have a wind uh, generator, uh, it's really a column, and some of them are not even um, based on the on, on the bottom of the sea. They float around, and they are extremely easy to remove. They do have another problem. These these kind of generators nowadays, um, under the present uh, situation, uh, the present technological circumstances, and I insist on that. Um, because it might change tomorrow. Uh, but for the time being, uh, it is not enough to have one wind generator. It's not as if you can actually put something in and then you're done. You need more and more and more and more, and you need a certain number so that you can have capacity that would actually cover the enormous expense required. That really means that you cannot have one generator in place. You must have a field of generators. And that has certain uh, spatial challenges to be taken into consideration, isn't it? 
keep in mind that everything you put into the marine environment would have necessarily to compete uh, with other uses of the seas. So it's not easy to just put uh, wind generators left, right, and center while you would actually disturb navigation, you would disturb fishing, you would disturb every other use uh, of, of, uh, of the seas. Um, so something that is considered benign, so to speak, uh, you do not immediately go negative in terms of wind generation, um, might actually create more problems uh, than a massive, uh, smelly and noisy and, and all kind and dirty uh, oil and gas platform. Um, you would also have to go beyond this kind of uh, uh, non-traditional, if you like, um, uh, energy installations. Uh, wind um, uh, is not the only source of alternative sources of power. Um, you would actually have wave power. Again, you need uh, the kind of structures that would require sp a certain spatial element. Uh, things like that that need to be taken into consideration. Solar panels, again, they would need space to, to, to develop and expand. Um, another energy installation that we do not necessarily uh, keep in mind, simply because it's, we don't really readily see it, I would say, is cables. We forget cables. Cables are extremely old. It's actually uh, the oldest regulation there is because it goes back to the Paris Agreement in 1884 uh, on telegraphic cables. Hmm? Uh, and that was a big deal at the time because, of course, there was one cable going from Europe to the US, uh, one big, thick telegraphic cable. But cables nowadays are not simply telegraphic. They are not telegraphic anymore. They're usually used for, for internet purposes, but also power cables, all kinds of things. And um, uh, I had some wonderful pictures when I decided not to produce a PowerPoint. That was my only concern. Now oh, you're not going to see the, the photos. Because uh, I have some, uh, when you see how thick, thickly uh, these cables are put on, 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 on uh, uh, the bottom of the seas, you immediately realize that there is a problem there. What's going on? Um, again, there's a question of different uses of the seas, how we are going to regulate those uses of the seas without really creating uh, any problem uh, with the placement of, uh, of, uh, of cables and their operation. Needless to say, you cannot go trawling over an area thick with cables. Hmm? Your internet connection is going down the line in no time whatsoever, isn't it? And in addition, uh, the density of, these, uh, of the placement of these cables, which might be smaller or, or larger, um, and occasionally they are uh, also grouped together with pipelines, and then you have another dimension of the problem. Um, these cables may actually generate... Uh, energy, uh, they would uh, energy, uh, generate an, an electric field or something like that, that may cause harm to the marine environment overall. Things that we have not sufficiently established as yet, because research is still ongoing. Uh, we usually, we, we have been talking about noise in the sea, 
this is not noise in our understanding of noise, uh, but this is a, a, a buzz that goes on. I'm not so sure if I were fish, I would actually continue living with this buzz around my ears all over the place. The major issue, however, after all these massive installations uh, for oil and gas or pipelines or the less massive, like cables or, or things like that, uh, the legal question is really a question of jurisdiction, isn't it? Uh, question number one, where do I put these things? And um, do I, uh, who, who should I ask for permission? So necessarily, the first question is a question of jurisdiction. Uh, where's the problem, if that is the first question? Because then, quite clearly, you would go to the law of the sea convention, um, you have it on your tables, you just check, Mm? You, you go and find your, the appropriate zone and you go to the coastal state and you ask for your for permission and that's the end of it, isn't it? That's fairly simple, fairly clear. Uh, fairly simple and clear, yet we're talking about these massive installations, we're talking about these uh, things that somehow must have or we presume that they must have some kind of general comprehensive regulation. And guess what? They do not have. They simply do not. Up to now, most states would actually operate under the traditional way um, through an environmental impact assessment, uh, through a permit, through all these kinds of things, just to construct these these installations, put them in place, and that's the end of it. Um, coordination came not really through the action of states, but from the other side, through the industry. Why? How many uh, corporations are out there who can actually build an offshore platform? It's quite clear, isn't it? There are very few. And if they have to check and recheck and double check every time they need to build a platform where what is the applicable law, they would be in, in trouble. And keep in mind that a platform like that, one of the smaller platforms, may actually be taken over and placed into another area. What are we going to do? Change it half the, halfway through? So inevitably, and by economic necessity, it was the industry that came up with their own internal sort of self-regulation on how these things should be built and operated. Uh, especially the operation came out as an afterthought, really, in international law. And in that particular area, the industry was very negative, extremely unwilling to entertain any thought of regulation on the international level. Why? Because they wanted their own self-regulation. They really wanted to take care of their own without the interference uh, of the state. On the one hand, they were right, because clearly these are uh, extremely technical issues. And um, the national legislator uh, is absolutely ignorant about that. So what happens in, the most, in most cases is that you have a technical specifications list that is created by the industry for the industry, 
and is sent to the national parliament or the national authorities or whatever, and, and it's more or less rubber stamped. Hmm? Because clearly, lawyers like us do not have the relevant knowledge to be able to verify and properly um, investigate the, and follow up the implementation of these procedures. On the other hand, just to leave that area unregulated without any interference from the state, when the impact of such action is really so extraordinary, somehow doesn't work well. And inevitably it took uh, a major accident, uh, BP uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, to generate discussion about that and, and uh, come up uh, with some kind of regulation. And I'm talking about some kind of regulation for a very simple reason. Uh, there's no international regulation as, as such. Uh, there was, and there still is, a first instrument, a regional instrument, a protocol for the protection of the Mediterranean Sea against pollution resulting from exploitation and exploration of the continental shelf and the seabed and its subsoil. That was actually the very first instrument in the negotiation of which I was involved on behalf of the Greek state, 1995. Uh, um, extremely successful. It came into force in 2011, <laughs> after the Gulf of Mexico situation, when somebody, uh, and especially the Europeans, were actually looking around uh, for something to, 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 to latch on and, and create their own um, uh, regulation. And their own regulation was actually Directive 2013-30 uh, on safety of offshore installations, uh, which is the European Union directive, and as such, is not simply regional, is actually sub-regional. Hmm? And yet, and yet, and these are the peculiar ways of international law, this sub-regional secondary regulation of a regional integration organization is the global standard. Why? Because the industry has accepted it as the global standard, and there's been a political um, deal, so to speak, uh, an undertaking um, that whatever they do around the world, they're going to keep the same standards. So uh, give us minimum legislation, that was the deal. Give us a minimum of legislation, don't get into any detail. But we undertake to use the same standards for whatever we do, wherever we are, around the world. Um, implementation and monitoring of that, question mark, it needs to be decided. But it's actually decided by the market, I would expect. Nobody's going to deal with um, restructure. Uh, there would be certain corners that can actually be cut, but the rest would be okay. Okay, but this is... <coughs> this presents, for the time being, a very clean cut kind of situation, isn't it? Jurisdiction, it would be the coastal state that would tell me exactly what to do, uh, a certain amount of uh, uh, regulation in place. <coughs> Sounds okay? Hmm? Is there any problem out there? Oh yes, you guessed it, of course there's a problem. Um, problem number one. What if we are not entirely certain 
as to the jurisdiction over a particular maritime zone. What if there is an outstanding delimitation to be undertaken? What if we are neighbors and we hate each other and we have a major dispute in our hands that would actually concentrate on the delimitation of our maritime areas and eventually would project itself onto uh, the deployment and use of energy installations. And you know what? States do not really enter <coughs> a delimitation arrangement if they are in such dire straits, unless there is some kind of economic incentive out there. If they feel that there is now scope for development, there is now some idea of any future exploitation in this particular area, then it is worth their effort to try and delimit that area. To delimit an area and try and, and, and resolve a potential dispute out of the blue, I haven't really found any example, and if you have one, please let me know, okay? You would see such issues disputes sort of lying around forever and ever and suddenly they heat up. Why? Because suddenly there is some kind of economic interest there that must be regulated. Where, why it must be regulated? For the obvious reason. If somebody were to put all this money to, to construct one of those major platforms and put it there or uh, set up a, a pipeline, and a pipeline is something that does not actually require just one coastal state. By necessity, by definition, it would involve many more, hmm? and it would involve also areas of high seas and then for all kinds of other issues as well. This is an enormously expensive operation. Who is going to put money into such an enormously expensive operation unless... The, the, the legal issues are resolved or may be resolved in the foreseeable future. If such an operation is extremely risky, nobody's going to put any money into that and so everything would just stall forever and ever. So, question number one. How do we take into account the presence of energy installations during a delimitation exercise? How do we react to this kind of thing? Again, we have different scenarios. The first one is the good one. Uh, we have a delimitation agreement decided between ourselves. Uh, quite clearly, if you have already energy installations in place, you would have been absolutely stupid not to take that into account. Isn't that the case? And in most cases, that is indeed true. So you would have a median line, for instance, drawn as a delimitation between uh, different states. And somehow this median line is not exactly straightforward, but it goes like pink on this side and pink on the other side. Why? To accommodate existing installations. Sometimes they don't even name them. They just put them, put the the line around without any further mention. And I, I found uh, a number of uh, 
agreements that said, in case there is any installation in, in place, you don't know. <laughs> Oops. Look, there's an installation in place <laughs> overnight. <laughs> I, you know, drafted in such a way as if that were surprise, <laughs> this kind of thing. But still, it's, it's there, and it is taken into consideration, even though states may not necessarily say so explicitly. But that is by agreement, so there's no problem. Whatever they wish, they can do. The problem arises, and there are more and more problems arising, actually, um, when there is no agreement. If there is no agreement, then, again, two options. Option one, let's go into a dispute resolution uh, situation. And there, we have to go and, and visit the, the, the case law of courts and tribunals and see whether the presence of, of uh, uh, such installations is taken into consideration when the court or the uh, arbitral tribunal is uh, deciding the delimitation line or giving the principles upon which the delimitation line is going to be drawn by the parties. And of course there, we started on the wrong foot, I would suggest. Why? Because in the first such delimitation case, uh, the North Sea uh, Continental Shelf cases uh, back in 1969, um, the court, the ICJ, said that you don't need to take them into any specific kind of consideration. They are accepted as a given fact, quotation from the court. Uh, but it said that you do not put too much emphasis on those because they are part of, of arrangements that need to be taken over by the, country, uh, by the two parties. And indeed, uh, in, in the discussion, in the relevant passage, um, the court says that, you know what, this is one of the options. For instance, the, the parties could actually um, come up with an agreement for joint exploitation, appearing particularly appropriate, said the court, hmm? in order to achieve unity of, of the unity of deposit. So that was the first foray, if you like, and the court had ideas. Uh, the suggestion was that I'm not going to take anything for granted, I'm not going to, 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 to uh, follow up on the present circumstance so that they may not be a race to put installations in place. But we'll think about that. In subsequent cases, especially from that first uh, period, Tunisia Libya, for instance, where there were a number of the offshore uh, installations in place and there was a major discussion, the court said that this is just an element to be taken into account just an element to be taken into account, but not really any decisive factor uh, or anything like that. It's virtually, uh, the court said, an extraneous, uh, extraneous factor, since all these, uh, said the court, were variables which uh, unpredictable fortune or calamity might at any uh, time tilt the scale one way or another. Hmm? A fortuitous event. Again, things have cropped up in the middle of the night uh, as, in, as, as by chance. Um, but the message was clear. Again, don't run out there and, and put up installations in an effort to somehow influence the decision of the court or tribunal. The court or tribunal would not 
consider that decisive. Uh, in the Guinea-Guinea-Bissau arbitration, <coughs> the tribunal said that though these were not sufficient basis for the delimitation. Um, in the Barbados, Trinidad and Tobago arbitration, um, it was the same thing was said where the court indicated that resource-related criteria are to be treated cautiously, and they are treated cautiously by courts and tribunals. And indeed, the, the, the tribunal there distinguished the Jan Mayen case, where you might remember there was a delimitation based on fishing um, areas and, and the presence of particular fish in a particular area. And it said that that, that was most exceptional hmm? and not to be used as a precedent uh, for, for other types of resources, not the living resources that fisheries were in the Jan Mayen case, not even for the non-living resources that uh, oil and gas were. And in the Nicaragua-Colombia case most recently, uh, the court just mentioned that as established fact. So, you know, no further discussion, no point whatsoever. Okay, um, but again, when you have settlement of disputes, a settlement of dispute procedure, you still talk to each other, you still there is a, a line of communication. There is a certain amount of good faith in place, um, and you can you can move in a certain way that would make sure that you, you are still on top of the situation. What happens when we don't talk to each other? What happens when uh, I hate you? You hate me, um, and I would really like to do something in using my own resources, which incidentally you consider yours, but tough luck because they are mine and we all know that they are mine. Hmm? Isn't that a recipe for disaster? Isn't that a recipe for fun? For a lawyer? Yes, it is. Well, the Law of the Sea Convention has made provisions for that. Um, Articles 74.3 and 83.3 they do uh, organize somehow this uh, situation. The British Institute has just produced a report on that. Some of you were actually there. Um, and and um, the arrangement uh, organized by, by the, the, the convention is pretty much a dual type of arrangement. There is a positive obligation to make any effort to enter into provisional arrangement, provisional arrangement, in a spirit of understanding and cooperation. So, okay, don't fight it out, but try something provisional. And a negative obligation not to jeopardize or hamper the reaching of the final agreement. Okay, excellent and on paper. How do you do that? If you have a real obligation to negotiate, and there's a real obligation to negotiate here, there's no question about that. Uh, which I would suggest uh, really means that if you breach that obligation to engage in meaningful negotiations, then you are liable for it, isn't it? It seems to me inevitable. But at any rate, you do have a real obligation to negotiate. For how long? Forever. And ever, if the other guy doesn't play ball, 
am I still stuck to negotiate or going after somebody sort of saying, let's talk, let's talk. He doesn't want to talk, you know, loud and clear. What do you do? Can you pull out? Is it possible to visualize this whole situation as a some kind of a moratorium clause whereby in in cases that may be extreme but perhaps not so extreme <coughs> you would have a freeze in perpetuity over activities you would like to undertake from the moment that the other guy, your neighbor, the other party at any right, at any point, um, would actually raise a claim over that area. Which really means that it is the other guy, the claimant, that would set the agenda, depriving you from the proper exercise of whatever it is that you feel entitled to. Would that be a possible outcome? Question mark. Uh, um, and this is, I, I concede, an extreme case, but uh, somehow in real life, it's not necessarily so extreme. What happens in situations like that? We do have some practice from courts and tribunals in dealing with those articles and these provisional arrangements. It's slightly complicated by the fact that in most cases, um, uh, the circumstances under which courts and tribunals dealt with these arrangements were actually in the course of an indication of provisional measures. Uh, and, and we all know that provisional measures require, have a certain standards, certain <laughs> requirements that need to be uh, <coughs> met. And they are not exactly the same as the full-blown adjudication of a situation. <clears throat> it seems, however, that uh, courts and tribunals have consistently, ah, consistently, question mark, have so far distinguished between activities of a kind that may lead to a permanent physical damage, such as exploration of oil and gas reserves, and those that do not lead to such a permanent damage. The original distinction was present in the Aegean self-continental shelf case, but again at the provisional measures, the interim measures of protection uh, phase in 1976. And there it was explicitly mentioned that the permanent physical damage was the exploration of oil and gas reserves, and the non-permanent damage was the seismic exploration. Hmm? Okay. Keep that in mind. We have the same principle upheld in the Guyana-Suriname arbitration several decades later, where the, the tribunal found explicitly that an ongoing offshore exploration constituted a breach of the obligation of the parties uh, to reach a temporary kind of solution and refrain from aggravating um, uh, the dispute further. And indeed the court, the, the tribunal there, uh, came up with alternatives. It said it would not have been the case, I mean, uh, it's quite clear that Suriname was in breach, but it would not have been in breach if they had consulted with the other party. Okay, sounds reasonable. 
If they have announced the beginning of operations to the other party, again, sounds reasonable. If they had invited the other party to observe, okay. Hmm. And if they had actually proceeded to put all the money coming out of that into an escrow account until such time, are you kidding me? <laughs> are you simply kidding me? So that is really, clearly, uh, the freezing element that I was talking about earlier, isn't it? You, you have set the agenda, you have sent me to do the, the job and, 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 and you know, all the dirty work, um, pay for it at, with, uh, at the present time and then put the money in escrow so that you can actually have access to that in due course. You must be kidding me, there's no other way around that, isn't it? Nonetheless, in that particular circumstances, there was naval intervention, so the Navy of Suriname was there, and there was a use of force, which the tribunal said is unlawful use of force, full stop, there's no question about that. And the same actually uh, was held by the tribunal in the South China Sea, where again, uh, uh, the tribunal talked about unlawful use of force in breach of Article 77, though, uh, even though China considered in good faith that she was entitled in, uh, to these particular uh, parts of the South China Sea. Uh, but uh, even though uh, there was no possibility of any military uh, operation against Philippine, uh, Philippine uh, interests in the area, and, and, and the tribunal was absolutely clear-cut uh, about it. Um, a final development uh, we see in that case, in the Ghana-Cote d'Ivoire case, which is pending, but there was again a provisional measures phase. And in this provisional measures case, um, ITLOS in that particular situation came back to the original distinction in the uh, Aegean self uh, case. But this time around it said, fine, Permanent physical damage on the one side and non-permanent damage to the other side. However, the allocation of activities was different. In the Aegean Sea case, the ICJ had put seismic exploration onto the non-permanent side. This time around, ITLO said... The rights of the coastal state over its continental shelf include all rights necessary for and connected with the exploration and exploitation of the natural resources of the continental shelf, and, that, uh, and the exclusive right to information about the resources of the continental shelf. In, in actual fact, they said, and the exclusive right to, ex to information about the resources of the continental shelf is plausibly among those rights. Now, right to information, seismic activities, where do you get information like that? So there's a clear move from something that was very, very clear-cut, but not necessarily practical in the 70s, to something that is much more attuned to market realities nowadays. <coughs> but which, if you follow to its logical conclusion, really means that you cannot do anything. Again, full stop.
In that particular case, uh, the tribunal uh, actually allowed the continuation of certain operations that were already ongoing on the Ghanaian side. Mm. And, and simply because they said that uh, it's, it's impractical to stop them and it may also cause an irreversible damage to the marine environment. So it showed wisdom in, in, in making sure that the situation continued until such time as a final uh, resolution comes through. Uh, but it shows how, how interesting it is and how intertwined with, with uh, the realities of the marketplace uh, is the, the, the regulation of these kind of activities. Um, I should stop there and um, invite comments and questions and all kinds of queries. Thank you so much. Thank you.